from the outset, I decided I want to have multiple streams of revenue because there's going to come a day where, you know, woodworking is too strenuous for me to do. And wouldn't it be great if on the front end, I'm, I'm setting up to be able to, to have some long-term passive income. That's the voice of Woodshop Mike, and I'm excited to talk with him right after this quick word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Jobber. Jobber is software to organize and manage your business. From quoting a project, to getting paid, to everything in between, Jobber software brings everything together to make projects easy to manage and customers happy, giving you more time in your day and getting you paid faster. Go to getjobber.com slash Ethan or check out the link in the show notes for a free 14-day trial of Jobber. And if you try it now, you get 20% off your first six months when you sign up. Hello and welcome to Building a Furniture Brand with Ethan Abramson, the show that talks about the business behind the furniture business. Today I sit down with Woodshop Mike. Mike's furniture company is located in Georgia, but his reach goes far beyond that. He set up his business not only as a custom furniture company, but as a business that has multiple streams of income all generated from the furniture he's building. That way, he ensures that even if client work is slow, he never has slow time in the shop. Follow along as I talk with Mike about how he grew his business from what at the time seemed to be a complete life disaster into the successful company it is today. We talk about the importance of a face-to-face -face meeting, how to make a contract that protects your work, how he can collect 75% upfront for his furniture, and a lot more. But before all that, let's go back to the beginning and learn how Mike's journey into the furniture world started. So I got into woodworking actually in high school. I apprenticed with a luthier building guitars. Uh, the, the push for that was I wanted a better guitar but I could not afford one uh, being a poor high school kid. So um, working with my hands had always been something that was interesting to me. So one thing led to another. I found a luthier in the Charlotte area and you know, got, got started that way. So how did you move from the world of building musical instruments in high school to having a full-time woodworking business? That's a great question. So my transition was a very, very uh, long period of time. I, after high school, I was in college and I was in college shop. And that's where I first got exposed to furniture building, a little bit of casework. But what I really fell in love with was wood turning. Uh, and I still really enjoy wood turning. It's just not something that I've been able to make any appreciable amount of uh, money from. Uh, after college, though, I, I worked a desk job for several years in the design uh, field. And I still did woodworking on the weekends and the evenings. And I ended up starting a blog as a way to give back. I had, I had seen the knowledge that I was uh, exposed to as a gift. I was very fortunate, or at least I considered myself very fortunate to have done that apprenticeship in high school. And I had um, great professors in my college shop that that uh, you know took me under their wing and and showed me a lot of uh, techniques and shared a lot of information with me. So that was the catalyst for me starting my blog. And you know from there that then transitioned into what's this thing called social media 
And even today, I don't really do that much on the personal side of social media stuff. It's really all for my business. Uh, and then from there, I got into YouTube a bit. So all the while, I'm still working my full-time job. And what happened is uh, my plan was one day, either once the house was paid off or once my kid was through college, I would take a stab at going full-time and just you know see where we're at. But there was there was a different plan apparently i i got laid off and the the thing that stinks about that is we had moved to uh, to georgia to our current home uh three years prior yeah three years prior uh and found a house that has a, a full unfinished basement it's completely open and i turned that into my shop and that's still where i'm working out of so uh, me going full-time was uh almost by accident, I guess. I mean, we had the pieces in place, but um, it wasn't it wasn't in the timeline that that we had been planning on. So, you know, one thing led to another, ended up, you know, staying um, or ended up just giving this, giving this a go. And I, I can't believe how how busy I am. My full-time woodworking journey is not exactly what you might expect. I didn't I didn't go out of school and open up a shop right away. Like I said, I worked at a at a desk job for many years. It, it's it's crazy how everything started falling into place once I got laid off. So sometimes out of out of disaster comes the best growth, and that must have been a scary situation for you because you are somebody who likes to plan things out and not jump into things blindly and you had a plan for for where you wanted your company to go and how you wanted to grow it and and when you wanted to start it and and that all just went by the wayside when you got laid off and you decided to do the furniture full time and and give that a go how did you start from day one building that business sure um so i mean completely honestly i prayed um, and you know past that like you said yeah i i had a plan in place of of how i wanted to do things and and when i wanted to actually start but i i set up right from the outset i decided i want to have multiple streams of revenue because I, I want to be able to have some uh, some evergreen revenue streams because there's going to come a day where you know woodworking is too strenuous for me to do. And wouldn't it be great if on the front end I'm I'm setting up to be able to to have some long-term passive income? So that's part of the reason why uh, I only take on a handful of projects each month so that I can make content around those projects so that I can make plans to sell around those projects. And by doing so, uh, when we had the shutdown last year, a lot of people, you know, were, were scrambling for work. Like it was, you know, we're not going to mince words. It was, it was bad for a lot of people. Right. But thankfully uh, I had done, uh, I'd done some, some, evergreen work, made plans, and plan sales, honestly, are a big thing that uh, sustained us, sustained the business uh, through that slowdown. So 
you know, my, my setup, like I said, is, is different than I anticipate many woodworkers, many professional woodworkers um, take on. I, I try to be very specific about the projects that I take and that I want to, to do projects that I can make, you know, new woodworking plans um, around. So part of that is I, I work with interior designers because they're all the time having, having different types of work that, uh, that need to be done. And so that brings to, to my portfolio, so to speak, of plans, uh, many different styles of work that, um, that I can offer. You say that your approach is, is different than a lot of quote unquote professional woodworkers, even though you, with quotes or without quotes, are a professional woodworker. You, you do this, <laughs> you do this as, as your full-time job. But you say, you know, it's different. And I see, I see on the surface that it might look different than, say, somebody who's in their shop with uh, their team and, and just building things all day. But truthfully, it's it's not different because you are taking on these projects to build plans to put out into the world. And that is your advertising. That is how you are advertising your business. And you're dealing with interior designers so you can make new types of plans and, and that you can put out to the audience and out to the world. But that is building a reputation with these interior designers. And it's making the things that you do as custom work into production pieces where people will see that work and they'll like that. And instead of you having to reinvent the wheel, you know every single step along that process and you could make that exact piece or you could change it up a little bit, but you know exactly how to do that. So you're not starting from scratch at, e at each custom piece, which a lot of custom furniture makers do. So yes, from a surface, a quick look, it might be different, but you're doing exactly what everyone else is doing just in in your own way which is which is great there's no right way to start a furniture business and you can do it whichever way you find the most success in mm -hmm. now let, let's jump into working with interior designers because i want to get more into your actual business mm -hmm. when you're building for a designer Number one, how do you make those relationships with designers? And number two, what is the process of talking out a new piece all the way to installing it in a customer's home look like? The first thing that I did, how I made those initial contacts was I, I live outside of the greater Atlanta area and there are a ton of, of interior designers uh, around Atlanta. So um, basically one day I, I went on Google and I Googled um, high-end interior designers, found, found a handful of people that I absolutely wanted to visit. And I kind of made those uh, keystones in my, in my trip or in my schedule. And then I looked up, you know, who, who would be secondary, um, you know, choices. You know what I'm saying? Like I made a prioritized list and just routed out a, a loop for the day and went and knocked on doors and shook hands. And, you know, 
I, I gave everyone a, a business card and on my business card, I think at the time I had a QR code for my Instagram account and I've used my Instagram account, or at least I was at the time, as kind of a portfolio of the type of work that I have done, uh, made sure that they knew that I had experience in building guitars, not because they would be looking for a guitar. That's kind of stupid. But uh, if you think about a handmade instrument, what's one of the first things that comes to your mind? Attention to detail, uh, you know, high quality. So I wanted that to help speak to the kind of work and the kind of attention that I gave uh, my pieces. And from that initial, you know, uh, visit, I think I ended up doing uh, three projects. I, I probably saw a dozen or more interior designers and I, you know, ended up with a couple of projects just within the month. So that was, you know, for, for my, um, for my throughput that I can uh, manage as a one man shop, that was actually pretty good. And from that, other interior designers started reaching out and, you know, after that, it's, it's really just been word of mouth. So I, I feel really fortunate in the uh, small amount of legwork, initial legwork that I had to do, because uh, it really paid dividends. I, I, I think I made probably one or two trips where I just cold called interior designers. And then since then, I've had enough work that I, I don't need to spend any time cold calling. The in-person connection is something that a lot of people forget about in this digital age. And mm -hmm. obviously there are setbacks recently, but as the world opens up more and continues to open up and people can safely meet in person again, it, it cannot be stated strongly enough that in the, in this digital age meeting somebody face to face and and getting the measure of them is a very important way to do business and we're all forgetting Absolutely. that and when you talk to people who have been successful in this industry you hear that over and over and over again that it's a it's a handshake it's a a face to face meeting it's a a sitting down and learning the other person's needs so mm -hmm. that that is something that is is very important that i've seen and, and it's good to hear that you also have seen that in your travels yeah man every every type of business from the influencer marketing side of things that i do to the custom woodworking you got to get that handshake you got to get in front of people and and have a conversation um and i mean absolutely and our generation is is horrible for um you know staring at a phone and saying oh i i'm friends with this person no you're not you you talk to them online you're like you might build a friendship but like go and go and talk to somebody to actually get something accomplished uh, and i realized I, I skipped over about the second half of your previous question of how do i uh, basically go through the design process. And a lot of that comes with a, um, an RFQ from the designer or a, or a pitch. And, you know, I'll give them a ballpark always before I do any kind of design work. And at first your ballpark, like when you're first starting out, 
and let's say you've been working night and nights and weekends and you haven't been keeping track of your hour, your initial ballparks are going to be just total garbage, but you kind of have to live and learn from um, how much you thought it was going to cost you time wise and material wise and keep start tracking that stuff so that you can get a, get a good uh, pulse for what an estimate needs to actually be. But one, once it starts to materialize into the actual design phase of things, uh, with my background being in industrial design, I am very comfortable and fluent in, uh, in CAD. The program I use specifically is SolidWorks, and that's pretty expensive for a small company. But the reason I use it is because uh, that's what my background is in, but also because it has what's called parametric design, which in a nutshell allows me to make changes um, on overall dimensions and still like uh, constrain proportions of things, if, if that makes any sense. It basically allows me to make revisions to a design very easily. So I'm not reinvesting a ton of time in my, in my modeling and uh, plans making um, side of, of, of the operation. When do the drawings actually enter into the equation for you while you're working on a project? Is it before the deposit? Is it after the deposit? Is it in the initial conversation? Because you said that you've streamlined it down to an easier process of, of changing designs, but at the same time, you and I both know that you don't want to be spending hours doing design work for clients that are just fishing. So how do you decide when to start doing those initial designs in a project? Yeah, sure. You could you could absolutely lose your hat on uh, on design time if it doesn't pan out. So uh, what I do is I charge 150 for a consultation. And that can either be over the computer or I can, you know, or I'll go and visit somebody and I'll do a consultation. And basically at that point, they'll get a napkin sketch. So, you know, I got no problem, you know, sketching out something in my notepad and handing it to them and saying, you know, this is how I understand what you're wanting. Uh, these are the dimensions. This is a rough estimate on, on your project. If, if this, you know, kind of all hangs together, our next step is I'm going to put together a formal quote and, um, and then I will start your design process once a deposit has been made. And the deposit amount that I take is 75%. Uh, I've moved around with that a little bit. Uh, when I first started, I think I was, I was taking maybe less than 50%, but I started taking 75% because um, actually a conversation I had with you early on, which we won't go into, but. Um, oh, wow. I don't now. Now I'm excited. I don't, <laughs> I don't, I don't remember this conversation. I hope, I hope it's yeah. it good information or else yeah, yeah. I'm going to look like a fool. Yeah, no, it, it took place in Portland. If you remember, um, but basically the uh, the thing that you said made me realize, all right, there's a very real possibility that I might build something and, you know, I, I'm, I might very legitimately run into a client that says, yeah, I'm not going to pay. I'm not going to pay the balance and it's already dropped off. So here we go. Um, 
so I, I wrestled with it for a little while and I, I landed on 75% and I've honestly not had anybody, um, buck that, that amount of a, of a deposit. And what that allows me to do is obviously buy all the materials, uh, without any investment of my own dollars. And it, it covers the majority of my labor. So, uh, that, that makes me kind of rest easy with, um, um, with the projects that are, that are in process. And, uh, obviously if I want that 25%, like the, the client still has some pretty good leverage of, uh, you know, Hey, here's that extra, you know, thousand to however many thousand dollars. If you, if you want it, you gotta, you gotta still deliver. So, uh, that, that's how that works for me. Oh, well, I'm very, I'm very happy that I could have helped you out and that, that does sound like good advice. So I, I, I'm happy I gave it to you. Yeah. Yeah. Much better than bad advice. And it was even free and it, it turned out all right. So I didn't, I didn't even have to pay you for any coaching. <laughs> now, when you're talking about clients, not delivering their end of the bargain, which is payment, that is something that a lot of furniture makers and furniture company owners have issues with and they usually get burned once twice three times before they realize that they need contracts in place because it is an artistic profession but there are issues that come up and that are outside of the artistic world there there are business issues that come up with people not paying with people suing with with you having to sue people to get money what type of contracts do you have in place or what type of fail safes do you have in place besides the initial deposit up front right um on my on my invoices it, it basically it lays out the terms and that's it but uh, before a project commences uh you know basically i, I have a hold harmless that I'll have people sign, especially if, uh, if it's any kind of install work where I'm, you know, even screwing a cabinet to the wall of the client's home, you know, I'll have a, a hold harmless. And it basically says, uh, you know, Hey, I'm going to make this to the best of my ability. And, you know, within reason, I will, you know, stand behind my work. Like I'm not going to come out and repaint in 10 years because you used bleach and a pressure washer every six months, um, to keep it clean. But as, as far as any clauses of, you know, hey, just so you know, if you don't pay me, I'm going to sue you. Or if this happens, um, you can't sue me. I, really, the hold harmless just takes care of, um, you know, loss of uh, property, damage to property or, you know, injury or loss of life or anything like that. Um, and it, it basically just says, hey, if you're a moron and dancing on top of your table and it breaks or flips over, um, well, that was not the intended use of your table. It was, it was for holding your dinner plate, not your feet. So, uh, that that's where I'm at with it. Uh, I know some people have, have very, very, um, explicit contracts and, uh, and whatnot to protect themselves. Thankfully, I've not had to, to collect, uh, payment from anyone, Every, everybody that I've worked with 
has always um, paid very quickly and uh, haven't had any issues, but you know, maybe my time's coming, who knows? Well, you sound like you're pretty together in, in what you're doing and everything is calculated. So I think that you've uh, covered yourself pretty well. Now, earlier in the conversation, we talked about social media and being on your phones and, and the importance of a face-to-face -face meeting. Mm -hmm. I want to jump back into that on the other end of it and say there is a big importance in social media in being on your phone for Absolutely. running a business for yeah for running a business. So it's very important to curate exactly what you want shown on your social media for potential clients. Mm -hmm. How do you think about that? as you're putting stuff online. I know that you have that balance of teaching woodworking and teaching plans and being a content creator, but it is also your portfolio for getting new business. What does it look like in your mind when you're thinking about what to put on your social media? Sure, so um, if I was a, a straight woodworker, like did not have a goal to sell plans, did not have a goal to teach or anything like that. I just wanted to sell furniture and get commissions and all of that. Uh, my, my profile would look much different than it does. As it is, since I do have that teaching aspect, that social media, or sorry, that content creator aspect to my business, the way that my uh, profile looks is I have a mix of in progress or behind the scenes uh, content, as well as uh, a fair bit of, of finished project content. So, you know, really I'm, I'm showcasing the entire process and, you know, what drives what I post one day to the next is uh, <laughs> honestly, how much time do I have? And did I remember to take pictures of this thing? Uh, that That's kind of what drives my social media schedule right now. Um, you know, I mean, there's, there's obviously sometimes uh, uh, contract obligations of I have to post about this and that um, within this time frame, you know, that, that will certainly drive some of, of what I end up putting out there content wise, but day in and day out, it's kind of, uh, I'm chasing my tail to remember, oh yeah, I still need to post something and uh, what's going to work today. So. Well, it goes back again to what you were saying, where you have multiple streams of income and that's how you've built your business because woodworking and custom furniture is an industry that people don't necessarily need. Like, other trades where your lights go out and you need an electrician, your yep. water goes out and you need a plumber. Those are trades that have emergencies that are in demand at specific times and they need to be there. I have never gotten, and, and I doubt you have, an emergency dining room table call where they say, <laughs> We we need we need it yesterday. We we've been eating on the floor and we can't and we can't do it anymore. You know, it, it it's a process. So, right, having multiple streams of income is important 
when you're not only starting out, but as your business progresses, because there are slow months that if you're, and, and even if there are not slow months, it's always nice to be having money coming in from different places. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Nobody's going to complain about a little bit of buffer. Exactly. And when you're working for yourself, it's always nice to have money coming in at different places because there is no paycheck that somebody is handing you at the end of the week. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Along those lines of working for yourself, because that is what people who are listening to this show are thinking. They're thinking about making that jump into going out on their own and having their own furniture company, or they're doing it and they're looking to get better at their process and building their company. As somebody who's been doing this for a long time, who has been successful at it, what advice would you give to those people who are looking to make that move or looking to change their perspective and run their business better? First off, my advice would be for somebody who has gotten the woodworking bug and it's really, really fun and really, really exciting and they're going, it would be awesome to make this my full-time job. My advice to that person would be to keep your day job as long as you can until you know, okay, first off, yes, this is more than just a phase. Uh, I, I do like the idea of doing this for a long time um, and definitely make sure that you've worked for people and not just your friends or family before you uh, decide to go full time. Because working for friends and family is way different than working for a client or especially for a designer. And then, you know, secondly, I would say do your best to set up multiple streams of revenue or to diversify the kind of work that you do. There, there are tons of, of options for cheap furniture, uh, whether we like it or not. Uh, so, you know, you may not always be able to get a commission for a dining table or a set of chairs or a set of nightstands or anything like that. You know, like there are lots of people that go to restoration hardware and buy you know, multi-thousand dollar uh, pieces of furniture. And when you set out to make it yourself, if you sell it for that exact same price, you're probably not making as much per hour as you should be. And just truth be told. And so, so yeah, I mean, that would, that'd be my advice. And also don't, um, don't pigeonhole yourself into, into one, uh, one type of work. I, I, it's not my preference to do cabinetry, but cabinetry pays well. Uh, it seems like I can um, I can usually charge a little bit more for cabinetry uh, from a client than I can necessarily for a, a piece of furniture or a dining room table. And cabinets are easy to make. So uh, while it's not my preference, it is still good money. So I guess that would be my advice. Well, that is very good advice. And I'm sure it's going to help a lot of people out there who are listening to this. Mike, thank you so much for sitting down with me. Thank you for sharing your advice. Thank you for sharing your journey. Thank you for bringing up advice that I've given you in the past. So it shows people that I actually know what I'm talking about when I'm on this at least, show. At least a little bit, but yeah, yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> oh, you're now, now you're now you're taking it back. All right. <laughs> well, thank you very much. I do appreciate it, and. 
I wish you all the success in the future. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. Enjoyed being on the show. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to Building a Furniture Brand with Ethan Abramson. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe to this podcast anywhere you like to listen. To learn more about the show, you can visit buildingafurniturebrand.com. And feel free to reach out anytime to say hey, ask a question, or suggest a guest for future episodes. Our email is hello at buildingafurniturebrand.com. You can follow along with me on Instagram at thebuildwithethan, and I can't wait to bring you the next episode. This show is produced and edited by me, Ethan Abramson. Hope you enjoyed, and thanks so much for listening. The Building a Furniture Brand with Ethan Abramson podcast is proudly part of the Woodpreneur Network, the media network and community for wood entrepreneurs. Check out woodpreneurlife.com for more information.